What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. I'm your host, Brian Moore, and today I'm interviewing Cameron Harold. Cameron wasn't the smartest kid in school. In fact, if he would have allowed his C average to determine his fate, he would not have achieved the level of success he has so far. From his earliest days, Cameron was destined to be an entrepreneur. He built and led several businesses to $100 million and more, many of them you've probably heard of, including College Pro Painters and 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He admittedly suffers from ADHD and believes this form of neurodiversity allows him to see the whole picture when confronted with everyday business challenges. He's the author of three high-impact business books, Double Double, Meetings Suck, and The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. Cameron's also a speaker, and one hell of a speaker. In fact, he's been called the best speaker I've ever heard by Forbes magazine publisher, Rich Carlgaard. And Cameron has had the opportunity to speak in 28 countries around the world. This episode happens to be the first episode I've recorded live in our studio in Scottsdale, Arizona. I gotta tell you, it was an absolute blast to actually have Cameron sitting in front of me as my inaugural in-person guest. So I decided to take the in-person opportunity and swerve into some what I guess I'd call lesser publicly known interest areas about Cameron, including his Burning Man experiences, his fascination with art, and our shared love of music. This is a great episode with the man who has become known as the CEO Whisperer. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Cameron Harold. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to welcome you to another edition of the Built on Purpose podcast or another episode. And today I am with the CEO whisperer, the man who goes by the name Cameron Harold. And for those of you that are into spelling, let me clear something up for you right now. His last name is spelled H-E-R-O-L-D. Get it right the first time. Cameron, uh-huh. welcome to the Built on Purpose show, man. It's great to have you. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I want to jump right into it. And where I'd like to start is I want to start in a little small mining town called Sudbury, right. about four hours north of uh, of Toronto. And uh, it has kind of become, well, it has notoriety for a couple of reasons, one of which is related to NASA. Yeah. And the other of which is related to a man named Mark Moses and a man named Cameron Harold, you, um, who both have what I would call incredibly unique careers coming from a very, very small place north of Toronto. Let's start with NASA. Okay. Um, Give us, as as you were growing up as a child, give us your perspective because you were around at that time, but I don't know how old you were and what that impact may have had on you in this little town. Yeah, it didn't have any real impact on me other than, um, you know, every city in the United States is kind of famous for something. And the city that I grew up in was famous for, believe it or not, in the early 60s, we tested the lunar module um, for the first moon landing was tested in Sudbury because the landscape was so similar to what they thought it would be like on the moon. So, yeah, that was where I grew up. So the Sudbury claim to fame is a moon-like place. That's awesome. Now, the reality is Sudbury's in a a really pretty city. It has 300 lakes inside of the city limits, and it is a really beautiful city now. But back in the 60s and early 70s, um, it was a big mining town, and all the acid rain from the mining smelters would come in and kill off all the vegetation. So they built some big super stacks and cleaned up all the atmosphere and did a really good job with cleaning up all the carbon dioxide emissions. And now it's a very green city and a very livable city. But yeah, in its time, it was um, 
pretty bizarre place. <laughs> I would imagine so. Now, so at the time you grew up, if you could think back to your high school experience, how many kids were in your graduating class? Uh, there's about 140 in my graduating class. There's about probably 1,500 in the school, I think. Okay. All right. Was, so a decent-sized school. Yeah, might, that might be a little large. Maybe it was about 1,200 in the school, but it was 140 in my graduating class. Okay. And was and so Mark, uh, and the reason I bring him up is I don't know to what level of notoriety he has, but when I was doing my research on Sudbury to see that two individuals, uh, you most important, uh, have built an incredibly successful career advising, coaching, and helping entrepreneurs bring their dreams to reality. It seems fascinating, at least as an outsider looking in, that this small mining town produced two individuals who do this. We actually had very similar upbringings. He actually went to a different school than I did, but we um, we did citywide public speaking competitions against each other in grade school. And then in high school for three years, we played on a competitive tennis team that was almost like a Russian military-style um, sports academy for tennis athletes. And we were trained, played five days a week together for three years. And then from there went on, and in university, we both ran house painting companies. I was with College Pro Painters, and he was with a group called Student Painters. And uh, then we moved to the United States, and I opened up College Pro on the west coast of the United States, and he opened up his company, uh, Student Painters, in California. Um, and then from there, we both got involved in the Entrepreneurs Organization, and then we ended up leaving our companies and started coaching um, CEOs. And I've, I've built out you know a big coaching organization, and Mark does coaching with CEOs as well, so... Just a similar, very similar path. The funny thing is we lost touch between when we were 15 and 35. We hadn't seen each other in 20 years. And uh, to, to kind of find out that these two kids from this very small mining town were now living in the U.S. and doing some pretty cool stuff was a funny, funny adventure. That's pretty awesome. Do you, you guys keep in touch now at all? On oh, sure. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. Um, I, I don't want to skip too far past the childhood portion because you grew up in a household uh, where entrepreneurship was the only way. Um, share with me a little bit about your father, because I know he's had a tremendous impact on you as you were growing up. Yeah, my father was really my first mentor. Um, and I think now I really look back and realize that, you know, the value of coaching is, is to have that mentor and to have that person who's been there before you that can guide you. So you don't have to learn from mistakes. You know, I hear people saying all the time, failure is great and learn from failure. I mean, screw that. Why do you have to learn from failure? Why not learn from somebody else's failure? So you don't have to actually, you know, make those mistakes. So my dad was really my first coach and mentor. But he also grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, as did my mom. So my two grandfathers were entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur. He raised the three kids, my brother and sister and I, all to, to run our own companies, which we do today. And then I even married into a family of entrepreneurs. My wife is an entrepreneur, her brother's an entrepreneur, and her mom and father were both entrepreneurs as well. So kind of bizarre that it's really the only world I know is, is building and running companies. Well, that's not, a, not too shabby a world to, uh, to know and to know quite well and to have been incredibly successful at. You know, I'm curious because uh, you're a father of four and this idea of entrepreneurship that has had just such a, a, a wonderful impact on your life. Um, one of the things that I took away, and this was years ago when I saw your TED Talk around raising kids to be entrepreneurs, was this lesson you began experimenting with around the concept of what most normal parents call the weekly allowance. Sure. And you've taken a little bit of a different spin, or at least you were at that time as an experiment. And I'm curious, A, share with us what this experiment was, and B, um, just the framing around this and why you've uncovered this as such a critical learning opportunity at a relatively young age for kids about the world of work. Sure. So you think about an allowance and the way that it's typically structured. You give your child the same amount of money every week, and you nag them to do their work to get that check. 
The kids aren't motivated to do it because they know they're getting the same amount every week. And the parents kind of have to hound them and nag them and remind them and then kind of begrudgingly give them the same 5 or $20, whatever it's going to be. So in my world, that was being groomed to expect a paycheck. The same amount of money for the same amount of work. And then you try to hold people accountable. Well, that's not entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is spotting opportunities, negotiating what it's worth, finding a way to hustle and get it done quickly so you can move on to the next opportunity and make money and to realize that there's an unlimited amount of money out there if you work hard and you apply yourself and you spot the opportunities. So I was raised in a world where we were given lists of chores and shown all the things that needed to be done and there were other opportunities that we could spot ourselves that would need to be done and our parents would kind of negotiate how much they would pay us to do it. You're like, hey, the garbage needs to be taken out. I'm like, well, how about three bucks? No way, I'll give you 50 cents. 50 cents, forget it. My brother would be like, I'll do it for 50 cents. I'm like, ah, and you learn about competition. <laughs> so you learn about negotiating. You learn about fair pricing. You learn about hustle. Or you come into your parents and you go, hey, I noticed the leaves need to be raked. How about I give you, you know, I'll do it for five bucks. And they say, great. And you realize that you landed it before your sister did because you jumped to the opportunity. So I think that's just a really good lesson to teach kids, whether they go on to run their own companies or whether they just wake up every morning in the world and think that there's not anything going to be given to you. It's up to you to go out and get it. And it teaches kids to not have any expectations and not blame other people because it's really about yourself waking up and seizing the opportunity. You think there's a particular age uh, having the experience you've had as a father of four where these lessons can be effectively introduced? Have you thought about at what point is the right time? Is it five? Is it six? Is it four? Is it eight? Yes. For sure, four or five years old, the kids start to understand things. They want to buy things. So if you can give them the opportunity to go do something and pay them a little bit, they see that. There's other chores that, you know, you need to do around the house just to be a good citizen and to be part of a family. You know, that's something that my wife and I talk about that there's some of the basic things that you just have to do. But every once in a while, I'm like, you know what, I'll let the kid negotiate and I'll get them to do it too because they're learning something as well as getting it done. So you can play on both. You know, it's interesting too. And you think about these lessons and this entrepreneurial mindset and in many ways it flies in the face of what is our traditional educational system in North America where kids sit at a desk, they are given information. It's traditionally, you know, based on rote memorization and in many ways sounds like kind of the same model of this expectation of a, um, consistent paycheck for a certain amount of work. You're going to come into a classroom. You're going to sit down. A teacher's going to give you knowledge. You're going to memorize it for the purpose of passing a test. And then you're going to move on. And I think at a very early age, you realized that from a rote memorization, um, as you've called, you're probably not the smartest kid in the room when it comes to the traditional model, yet where you were shining and what most failed to recognize were all of these other skills. And in particular, the one I want to point to, because I've seen it live, is your public speaking ability. And you spoke to it a little bit about the competitions you and Mark would have back uh, in your childhood. But at what point did you, if you can think back, begin to recognize that this was a gift and something that needed to be cultivated, invested in, and and really uh, continued as something that would be you know very pivotal and central to to who you are? Well, I learned pretty early on that you needed to be a good speaker to get into a group and get to meet people. I, I was in six schools in nine years, so transferring schools pretty much every eighteen months. I had to find a way to get to know everybody. So being able to speak in front of a group and get them to know me was one thing. Second thing, my dad was producing radio ads for some of his businesses, and I wanted to be the person on the radio as a kid, so I had to be confident in doing that. 
Um, and then selling stuff. I was going door to door selling all kinds of things that I would come up with, whether it was for a day of selling something or for a week of selling something. And, you know, back in those days when a kid wanted to do a lemonade stand, their parents didn't stand there all day with them. Their parents were like inside or at the golf course. The kid was running the lemonade stand and the kid needed to be able to sell and communicate and talk to strangers. And so those skills were really powerful. Uh, by the way, just something on the school system. The school system is horrible. I'm, I'm a big, big um, critic of the current school system as it stands today for one core reason. It actually destroys most children's confidence systemically every single day for 18 years. If you count from kindergarten through, I went through grade 13. We had a grade 13 in Canada and then for four years of college. So I actually had 18 years of school being told I was stupid being told I was a 62 percenter, which meant that 38 percent of the people were smarter than I was. So imagine going into a room every single day for 18 years and being said, you're not smart. You're not as smart as everybody else. You only got a D on this or you failed on that. That systematically destroys a human being. And that's not a good system. I think we should be sending kids into a school system and saying, you all get A's. It's open book tests. Everybody works together as a group. Here's the problems, work together, share information, teach them how to problem solve, research, look stuff up. But back when we went to school, you had to memorize because there was no Google and you couldn't spend all day going to the library figuring stuff out, so you had to be able to memorize. Nowadays, you don't have to memorize at all. You need to know how to problem solve, how to work together, collaborate, how to connect with other people, how to network and how to research and find information quickly. But we also shouldn't tell people every single day they're stupid. That's destroying all of us. There was a really interesting uh, article in this month's Harvard Business Review, the May-June 2017 uh, edition, and I want to read you an excerpt from it because I think it's a good segue to an area that I want to explore with you a little bit, so uh, bear with me for a moment as I read this excerpt. Meet John. He's a wizard at data analytics. His combination of mathematical ability and software development skill is highly unusual. His resume features two master's degrees, both with honors. An obvious guy for a tech company to scoop up, right? Until recently, no. Before, John ran across a firm that had begun experimenting with alternative approaches to talent. He was unemployed for more than two years. Other companies he had talked with badly needed the skills he possessed, but he couldn't make it through the hiring process. If you watched John for a while, you'd start to see why. He seems, well, different. He wears headphones all the time, and when people talk to him, he doesn't look at them. He doesn't look right at them. He leans over every ten minutes or so to tighten his shoelaces. He can't concentrate when they're loose. When they're tight, though, John is the department's most productive employee. He is hardworking and never wants to take breaks. Although his assigned workplace buddy has finally persuaded him to do so, although he doesn't enjoy it. John is a composite of people whose privacy we wanted to protect, people with autism spectrum disorder. He is representative of participants in the programs of pioneering companies that have begun seeking out neurodiverse talent. The reason I read this excerpt is not because I want to explore autism, but it's because there are other perhaps less severe neurodiverse differences, one of those being ADHD. And I think you are a self-proclaimed uh, owner of ADHD. Yeah. And what it's done for you has actually been a huge source of strength, not a weakness. Well, so I've, I have 17 of the 18 traits of attention deficit disorder. I have been diagnosed as dyslexic with dyscalculia, which is a, a numeric form of dyslexia where I transpose all of my numbers. And I'm certainly on the spectrum for, for you know, bipolar, for manic depression. 
Um, I even say that I, ha I would, you know, I kind of joke about maybe being on the spectrum for Tourette's because I say stuff and I don't want it to come out of my mouth and it comes out, but I know it's coming, then that's on the spectrum as well. Thinking out loud is on the spectrum. So according to the medical community, I would be a complete disaster with ADD and bipolar and Tourette's. But those are all strengths for me. The fact that I actually say what's on my mind and I don't filter and stuff just comes out is endearing in a lot of ways. It's frustrating at times too, but people at least know that I'm not calculating what I'm saying. It just kind of comes out and so they know that whatever I say is whatever I mean and they can trust that. Um, my ADD allows me to see everything. As an entrepreneur, I can see what's happening with the market, the customer, the economy, time. I'm hyper aware. I'm not late for things because I'm always aware of everything else around me. So, But I don't get so bogged down in one detail, which is good. Right, as an entrepreneur. Now, if I was an engineer or, or an accountant, that would be bad, but I'm not. And I think what we have to do is start realizing, and my mania is why people follow me. They love the excitement. They love my energy. Well, me crashing afterwards and being stressed or depressed is simply me course correcting and needing a break. You know, now the medical community would say those are bad things, but I'm not supposed to be a doctor. And teachers would say those are bad things, but I'm not supposed to be a teacher. And the reality is if those three percenters are the entrepreneurs, Maybe actually we shouldn't be diagnosing them as a problem. Maybe we should be saying, wow, you're ADD and bipolar and Tourette's. Holy shit, you're actually an entrepreneur. Let's leverage those skills. Don't medicate you because you don't want to change the person's natural innate abilities. So those are my superpowers, not my weaknesses. They'd be a weakness if I wanted to be an engineer, but I don't. It's a, uh, and it's kind of what you're talking about with these neuro, neuro linguistic or neuro, uh, neurodiverse, neurodiverse yep. people is those are their strengths. So if we can leverage their strengths and if we can put them into a, to a, an area or, or a way that they can actually feel good about themselves and not make them feel stupid, but make them feel special, then they actually, their confidence comes up. So if you routinely tell a student, you're bad, you're stupid, pay attention, be like everybody else. Why are you so up and down? Why are you so distracted? Fit in that hurts somebody. But if you go, wow, you're distracted, you're bouncing up and down, you're all full of energy, that's awesome, the kid's going to go, wow, I'm awesome. And then imagine what people could do. People yeah. rising to the level of the expectations of those around them. Exactly. Yep. So let's recognize what people's traits are and yep. not call them strengths or weaknesses. Recognize their traits and leverage the good ones and ignore the bad ones. Well, and it's so interesting. And I think the reason this has become and will continue to become more and more of a critical topic is the way we've oriented many of our hiring systems and organizations today are built to filter these people out immediately because you're sitting down in an interview and using this example that came from the article, if you're sitting down with someone and they're interviewing and they can't look you in the eye or they uh, are, are fidgety or uncomfortable without their headphones on, I mean, you've got some immediate things to disqualify them sure. for. And that, that it's just, it's such a limiting way of this. Well, the status quo is this is how we hire. And if they can't look you in the eye, they're out. Well, nowadays with a lot of the remote teams, what's happening now is people are able to do a lot of the work remotely and they don't need to interface with other humans face to face. So they can actually be their, their exact, you know, natural selves. But I think nowadays we have to teach people how to work together and how to collaborate and how to understand the other people and be more empathetic with others and realize that, their strengths match your strengths and look for those yin and yang relationships. Right. So when you let, let's, I want to focus on 1-800-GOT-JUNK for a minute because it was a huge success in your career of many. Um, how did you get into it? You were there early. It skyrocketed under your leadership and those on your leadership team. Give us a little bit of the insight into a company that made its, everyone has heard of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and it is, not a real sexy topic to talk about junk, yet 
you guys created something magical. Let's share, share with us what that journey was like. Sure. So I, I knew um, at a very early age that I needed to invest in my career and invest in myself and invest in my leadership skills. So I got involved in a group that I joined called the Entrepreneurs Organization or EO. And by joining EO, I could be around other people like me that I could mastermind with and learn from and build my network. Um, and that's where I met Brian, the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. At the time, it was called the Rubbish Boys, and I was building two companies. I was building a, a group that is now known as Gerber Auto Collision in the U.S. and Boyd Auto Body in Canada, and then also a private currency company that we built and sold. And during the four years that Brian and I were in this forum or this mastermind group together, he got to know what my strengths were, and I got to like his vision of where he wanted to take the company. And uh, I eventually joined him as his 14th employee. I came on as the chief operating officer, and we built that to... When I left, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. Uh, we were operating in 330 cities, 46 states, and four countries. I ran everything except IT and finance. So I ran the, the call center and sales. I ran marketing, uh, the, the PR groups, the national sales groups, all the franchise locations, our corporate locations, and all operations. So how were you guys able to build a culture of best place to work, that was built around the idea of picking up people's trash. So I, I learned at an early age, I was also part in, in college, I got involved with a group called College Pro Painters. And that was really the first probably investment in myself again that I made in, in learning the systems and growth and mentoring and the value of mentoring. And one of my mentors, the founder of College Pro, said that building a business, it has to be slightly more than a business and slightly less than a religion. It has to be in that zone of cult, which is culture. And so I understood at an early age that culture was critical because it would attract customers to you. It would attract other A players to you. It would make the business grow faster if you could build that cult-like environment. So I brought that mentality into 1-800-GOT-JUNK that we needed to build a culture that was strong to be like a magnet for new employees because if we grew at the pace we wanted to grow, we couldn't recruit them in the old-fashioned ways. They needed to be coming to us, which meant we needed to be a magnetic base. The second part of that was when you own the press, when you own free PR, the more press you get, the more press you'll always get. So it was how do we teach all of our franchisees in the corporate group on how to generate free PR? We ended up landing 5,200 stories about our company in six years, including being on Oprah and CNN and CNBC, pretty much everywhere. Um, and I've continued that today. I teach companies all over the world how to leverage the press and culture because when you build that magnetic force, then you can scale. It's all about employees, right? It, absolutely. I mean, we say that the only sustainable competitive advantage in business anymore is the people. And if you can orient them around something that has a, a, a true purpose or mission and a set of core values that guides the behaviors of how people interact with one another, and you can get that part right, you can weather a, a pretty solid storm. Yeah, and the purpose and mission is the first part of it. And the second part of it is a longer-term vision, kind of three years out. I call it a vivid vision. I cover it in two of my books. But the idea is to really describe your company three years in the future so that it's almost like a four- or five-page written document describing what your company looks like December 31st, three years from now, so that all of your customers, suppliers, employees, potential employees can see the future and they get excited about it because now they know what their skills can help drive that and make that happen. So that's the second component. And then the third component of culture is your other employees. You know, if you think of a cult, you're not going to have these weird misfits that just don't fit because they'll kind of screw up the energy of the group. So you really have to build that group that is vibrating together, pointed in the, in the direction of purpose and mission and the vision, but also um, are just, they have that energy so that when you walk into the room, you just can feel it. 
And we built that at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We were doing tours at our company every Friday for about five and a half years. We'd have 30 to 35 business people from around the U.S. would come for the tours every Friday. And people would stop right at the front door. They'd open the door and they would stop. And, and this, I've probably heard this 50 or 60 times. Oh my God, you can feel it. They literally would say that. You could feel the energy and it was palpable and it was just, it was different. And that, I think, is something that... Um, you don't get in most companies. Most companies are very beige. You know, every company has a culture, but, but a lot of them are just very beige. Yeah, the amen to that. Amen to that. I want to I want to stick with Vivid Vision for a moment because I visited your website, the CameronHerald.com website, and I read your Vivid Vision for December uh, of ending 2019, and I was blown away by the level of detail. There was not one speck of detail left out. How often in the CEOs and leaders that you work with, how often are they maintaining the image or the vision that they have and they feel like people are picking it up through osmosis, but it's just not transferring? Yeah, almost every CEO can visualize what their company looks like three years from now, but they keep it inside their own head. So it's almost like if you're the only person that has seen the movie you know what it's about, but nobody else can see it. Like last night I watched this movie on the plane. It was bizarre, but it gripped me. It was called The Lobster. Now, have you ever seen the movie I've The Lobster? I've not, no. Right? So you've got no, no idea no what idea. talking about. No right? idea. But I'm so clear. I'm like, how do you not get it? And I can start communicating it to you and giving it to you. But unless you've seen the movie. Now, if I get you to watch the movie for two hours, man, we're vibrating because we could talk about this for days. So the power of the vivid vision is to take the ideas out of the entrepreneur's mind, no matter how big or small the company is, Get them to write it down or as a four or five page written document describing your customers, your employees, what the suppliers are saying about you, what the media is saying, describing every single business area in vivid detail as if you're standing in the future. Then everybody can see what it looks like and then they can get the plans in place to make it happen. They can recruit the people that can make it happen. And everyone is operating with that same level of leadership intuition that the CEO has. And that's the most critical piece in business that's missing today. And that's probably the biggest piece that I'm known for globally in teaching entrepreneurs all over the world this stuff. And is it, uh, it, it when you share this idea and you share with people this four or five page incredibly vivid image of what the future looks like so that people can see themselves living into it, um, do the CEOs, do they, is, is the aha moment, oh, oh my God, you're right, it's, it it's right been away. stuck right here yep. in my head and I've simply not communicated it to the level they that I thought I had. They totally get it right away. Think about if you were building a house. If you were building a home and you wanted to have a certain style home, you could visualize in your head what it looks like. Now, you could say to a contractor, okay, build my home, spend $2 million, get it done in, a, in eight months. But they don't know if your home is supposed to look modern. Is it supposed to be a craftsman style? Is it supposed to be a ranch style? Like, is it a southern style? They, don't, they have no idea. But if you show them pictures and sketches and drawings, like, oh, now I know the kind of home you want to build. So you have to get the visions out of your mind and share it in a way. And unfortunately, the reason so many companies are trying to hold people accountable is because the employees have no idea what they're building. Every day people show up wanting to do a good job, but if they don't know where they're going, then Amy Road will take them there. It's so true. I want to talk about this idea of relentless learning because you are notorious for, as you shared earlier, um, why reinvent the wheel? Uh, your R&D analogy is not so much research and development. It's rip off and duplicate. If somebody has figured it out, take it and use it. It's yeah. there. It's public domain. See, I'm not smart enough to figure stuff out on my own, but I recognize that there's really, really good systems that are out there. I'll just use those. 
So if I can figure out who's doing a good job, why wouldn't I just do what they're doing? For me, momentum creates momentum, right? Perfectionism doesn't actually get us forward, but momentum creates momentum. So if I know somebody's doing something that's working, I'll use that. That will propel me further and faster than trying to figure it out on my own. So the the school system, we were told we had to figure it out on our own. Right. We had to be the smart person. Now I'm like, I don't have to be the smart person at all. I get to copy everybody. Who's inspiring you today as you think about whether it's books you've been reading lately, leaders that you've had the opportunity to interact with, uh, family members? Who's who, who's a big fire in your life right now? As a learner, my wife. I'm, I'm completely blown away by my wife and her interest and her, um, her ability to just stay fascinated with things and dig into different topics and ideas and her curiosity around trying stuff and reading stuff. And um, it, it completely blows me away. Like I, I, I guess I'm so linear that I don't recognize that all this stuff exists, but she's constantly you know, reading stuff, watching stuff on blogs, on news sites. It's amazing. That, that has really opened my eyes up in the last number of years. Um, I think in the, in the business world, I'm fascinated with um, a lot of the masterminding and a lot of, you know, joy. It's why I started this group called the COO Alliance. It's the only network in the, of its kind in the world for seconding commands. There's all these millions of groups for entrepreneurs. There's conferences for entrepreneurs, but there was never a place for the COOs to go and learn from each other and with each other. And I'm fascinated by that concept that if you pull a bunch of smart people in the room, they have all the answers for everybody's problems. If you just give them the time and the space to be able to talk and share and problem solve together, they can work everything out. So I'm pretty fascinated by that whole concept of masterminding. Why did you choose the COO role in the second in command? Besides the obvious, as you just stated, that there aren't any groups dedicated to them. Why did you choose it? And then B or second, as you think about the characteristics, the traits, the qualities that COOs demonstrate or have consistently shown you, is there a common thread that makes a second in command so good in that role? Yeah, so I, I've been a COO three times where I've really been that second in command to the entrepreneur. So I understand the, the kind of idiosyncrasies of the CEO and second in command relationship, that true yin and yang relationship. Um, I also understand that Without the entrepreneur's vision, without their passion, without their quick start nature, stuff wouldn't ever get happening. But without the second in command, most of it wouldn't happen properly or wouldn't grow as well. It would be too scattered. It wouldn't be scalable. Um, So I I just saw that as the natural fit. And the second part is often the COOs, like myself, would end up at these entrepreneurial conferences trying to learn with the rest of the entrepreneurs. But we're the ones actually putting it in place. So you start talking to the entrepreneur and they, they go, oh, you're only the COO and they turn and walk away or talk to someone else. So we needed to give them a community to actually learn about the tools to, to help them grow their companies. I mean, these are the people that are essentially doing the execution and bringing the vision to reality inside the organization. Sure. It's like a marriage. You know, you've got a husband and wife or two partners in a marriage that are there's there's really never one person who's capable of doing it all. One person balances the other person out, right? We either protect them from risk or we start things or we, you know, there's two. It just works better when there's two people doing stuff. You know, one of the areas that uh, I think is, is super cool to talk about, and, and maybe you talk about it a lot, maybe you don't, is where you draw your inspiration and creativity from. And I know one of those areas is art, and I want to get to that in a moment. But I actually want to talk about Burning Man for a minute, because I know this is an event that I, I would assume, given how busy you are and the commitment of really going and going all into that event, it, it's a commitment. And probably, I'm sure you... I don't know, maybe you suffer from a high level of anxiety of all the shit you're not going to do if you go dedicate the time to do that. But 
as I've learned from those close to you, that it is always a transformative experience for you. And I've never been, and I would imagine some of our audience hasn't. However, I think everyone has heard of it and the impact it has on the participants and the people who go and participate in the burn. What is this event? What does it mean to you and what do you get from it? So for me, there's a bit of this um, radical individualism where you you go and just do stuff and no one's judging you. Um, No one is there to talk about work. Everyone is there to talk about their passions, their joys, their insecurities. Um, no one is judging you. You're, you can just finally fit in. And I think in a lot of ways, I can fit in. I can drop my insecurities and my vulnerabilities. I think I've always said that a lot of us are, or I think almost everyone really is a 16-year-old trapped in an adult body. You know, that every listener, if they really identify, they are that true 16-year-old self trapped in our new adult body. And there's something about Burning Man where you can just go and let your guard down. Um, there's this beautiful sense of community where people actually care about each other. You don't shake hands, you hug people because there's a, t- a tighter connection in humanity and there's something that's really beautiful about that that you know we can let go of the bullshit of, of having to keep our game face on. And um, I remember one night at Burning Man, I was having a really tough time. This was probably about seven years ago or eight years ago at one and it was two o'clock in the morning. I'm standing out in the middle of the playa. I'm looking at this piece of art. I'm crying and I'm, and I'm openly sobbing, weeping, and I'm by myself. And this art car pulls up and this guy jumps off the car and he comes over to me and he goes, it's okay, you know it's gonna be okay. He goes, I don't know what you're going through, but everything just works out okay. And he gave me this huge hug and said, I just want you to know that we're with you. And I was like, thank you. And it was so completely random with this human connection and experience. And then he got back on his art car and drove off and and I cried a little bit more and then I kind of caught my breath and I walked away and I felt complete because I realized that we we aren't alone in this big world right that we are connected and we can take that back into our relationships and our families and so for me as that scared 16 year old kid trapped in a 51 year old body there's something that's pretty beautiful about that how much do you think this idea of just admitting and being okay with our insecurities, our vulnerabilities, and things that really do worry us, scare us, keep us up at night. How, how important is that quality in leadership today? And how absent do you think it is? I think it's absent in a lot of businesses. Um, and it's hard for a leader to truly be vulnerable and still be seen as a leader. It's a really, really rare piece that you have to keep you know, your confidence up at some point, but to truly be vulnerable you know, I, I'm often accused of like, come on, be more confident. Well, at times it's hard to be confident, but maybe I can be real. You know, maybe I can actually be authentic and not trying to be my authentic self, but maybe I can just be authentic and maybe that's stronger than being confident at times. Maybe my my being vulnerable is my confidence. Maybe my being vulnerable and my authentic self is my truth. And and maybe that's where the connection comes from is when people go, wow, we like you and, and we'll go through brick walls for you because we know you. And I think that's something that more CEOs and entrepreneurs can do that. And and if they're truly themselves, not to try to gain something from it, but recognizing that everybody's vulnerable. You know, I did this exercise at the COO Alliance recently where I had every single person in the room write down one thing that was deeply hurting them personally on that day, something they were struggling with that maybe other people didn't know about. And I said, don't put your name on the post-it note, but everyone passed in the post-it notes I had everyone close their eyes and I shuffled up the post-it notes and I read them all out loud and there were 25 different notes. Someone was struggling with their marriage. Someone was struggling with a child who was sick. 
someone said, you know, I shouldn't even be here today. I should be at home with my wife who's sick right now and it's killing me. There was, there was people struggling with their sexuality. There was all of these things that were happening and you go, fuck, we're all hurting, man. Like at some point we're all hurting. There's something here. And if we can just let our shit down and connect, and if you can connect with your employees that way and realize that, you know, maybe on that day that they're not getting their work done, maybe they're struggling with something. Maybe their dog's sick or their, you know, horse just died or their mom's ill or, or they're, you know, struggling with a disease. Maybe they actually would care about your company if you cared about them. I mean, what I'm hearing is a, um, and I'll do my best to summarize, is a celebration of humanity. Of just what makes us humans, of what makes us people, of yeah. what makes us all incredibly unique. Um, all of the big speaking events I do when I talk about building amazing company cultures, I talk about caring more about your employees' personal goals, personal dreams, their fears and their insecurities than you care about the business. And if you truly care about them, not like I know their dog's name and their birthday, but if you really know them as humans, they're going to go through brick walls for you. And I think that was probably one of the core strengths that I had at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was I actually really knew my employees and I knew their passions and I knew their fears and I supported them and I helped them. It was hard for me because I gave up so much of myself to be there for everybody that I think I lost a sense of myself when I was doing it. But I'll tell you, I have a massive, massive, massive network of former people from 1-800-GOT-JUNK that would go through brick walls for me today. Some that we had to fire over the years, but they would still go through brick walls for me because they truly know me. Do you think this is a learnable skill, this idea? Because a lot of leaders who are in place today that are running companies, whether they're big or small, got there because they were an amazing individual contributor and maybe they were a good team leader on a small scale, but then they get thrust up into a position of real influence and real authority and they forget or maybe just never had honed this skill if it indeed is it is teachable yeah there's something there's, there's a principle in adult learning where the student controls the learning environment so until you're actually ready to learn you won't learn so a ceo almost needs to hit some roadblock or something personal where it just messes with them where they can wake up in the morning and go uh i get it right and burning man did some of that for me I used to heavily judge people. I judged people, what they were wearing, what they were looking like. I, I knew if they were successful or not. And now I'm like, I know nothing. I know nothing about people because you have no idea what's going on behind their back. You don't know. I sat with a guy. I go to the main stage TED conference every year. My wife and I go now as well. And I sat with a guy. Um, his name is Addison Fisher. And Addison and I sat beside each other. He was a little disheveled and a little kind of dirty. Um, and, but, but I wanted to sit with him because he was sitting by himself and I thought I'll just sit with a random person and get to meet him. And he was, he seemed a little bit maybe autistic and, or, and, or certainly on the spectrum. And then Bill Gates came over to him and said, hello, you know, and I was like, well, Bill didn't say hi to me. And then, uh, you know, and then, um, you know, Al Gore comes over and says hello. And then, you know, um, Demi Moore comes over and says hello to him. I'm like, hey, who are you? What are you doing? Right? <laughs> Turns out Addison had started VeriSign and RSS and sold both of them for billions of dollars. And he's now trying to save the atmosphere in the oceans. And you realize, like, I know that everyone at TED is doing something because they're there. But you wouldn't have judged him as being this uber successful CEO based on his look. But I didn't judge on that because I had that stripped away from me from Burning Man years before. I used to judge people based on, I still like to, to look nice and I still appreciate when people dress up and take care of themselves and I like some of the finer things in life, but I don't judge someone's worth on what they wear or where they are. I don't judge someone's um, 
contribution. I don't judge someone's intellect because you just don't know. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think that was something that had to be, I had to learn that. I recently read uh, Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I don't yeah. know if you've ever read it. It's uh, I'd, I'd highly, highly encourage it. Um, in it are many fascinating, uh, simple twists and, and lessons in life. And one of them is a way of looking at um, as we get older, instead of acquiring knowledge to be more right, recognizing that as you acquire knowledge, you're simply becoming less wrong. And it's just a fascinating, slight uh, shift in, in uh, looking at why you're learning, how you're learning, what you're learning, in that so many individuals want to acquire knowledge because it will help them get ahead. And instead of really acquiring knowledge for the sake of, um, and, and, I, and I bring this up because I think it what you shared, it reminds me of this sort of aha moment where, yeah, you can judge a book by its cover. But recognizing that everybody's going through the same struggle, it's just their struggle, and theirs is no different than yours. It just happens to uh, look a little different, feel a little different to them. And this idea that um, approaching things with the intent to be influenced as opposed to the desire to be right. And that's what I took from the, the from Mark's book, among many sure. other things. It was just a fascinating slight shift. And just your comment around uh, what you've taken away from Burning Man just reminds me of that. Cool. Um, were you excited when ELO got elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> was I excited? I don't, uh, don't know, but I love ELO. I know I you was, do. I remember I was uh, I was nineteen seventy nine. That was a horrible um, segue, by the way. So I put no, you on the spot on that one. Segue. I hadn't actually <laughs> thought about the date just now, but the date's actually relevant. That's interesting. There's a really relevant um, time period in 1979 that I'll keep personal. But um, in 1979, I was driving to Fernie, British Columbia, uh, with my aunt and uncle and my best friend Rob, and we were going skiing. And we we were listening to a cassette tape, and it was ELO, and it, the album was Time, and I was captivated by this music and still to this day i think yellow is one of the greatest bands of all time i love it i love it i just have it's it's so funny i was um at home over the weekend and my wife was born in 1979 that's why it's so funny i'm like wow wait a second the the year that my wife was born was the year that i was actually influenced by a band that turns out it was actually her dad really liked yellow as well so i think that's kind of cool well i was sitting on the couch and was just flipping through the channels and 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 i'll say it was a rare moment because i barely watch tv anymore which i'm really proud of because i don't find that there's a whole lot of value in it and there's a lot of other things I'd rather be doing with my time. However, I'm a huge music fan and I happened to pass through the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony and a little birdie told me that ELO uh, among a few bands is, is up there near the top. And so uh, they happen to be being inducted and I thought I'd bring it up. Based on some of your questions, I'm beginning to figure out who the little birdie is. So. Uh, they're, they're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so keeping with the little birdie theme, um, let's talk about art for a minute. Uh, Kim had shared with me that uh, you guys have really... I don't know if this is a recent fascination, but a fascination with the photographer Michael Dweck and his work. And I'd yeah. love to hear um, – I can appreciate great photography. I don't know that I have a favorite uh, photographer or style, but I'd love to get a little insight into why Kim felt um, that this was a topic you'd enjoy discussing, what it is about his work. I think I've, I've always really loved art. I've, I've also been a little scared to buy it. Um, 
because I felt like I wasn't either worthy to have it or didn't know where to start. And a few years ago, I was at a friend's home and, and saw that he had art everywhere. And um, this friend of mine, Josh, and, and he had art everywhere. And he showed me that it wasn't even expensive pieces. It was just pieces that he saw and impulsively decided to buy. And I made that decision in my mind that I would start doing that, that I would start buying different pieces that I liked or that um, that moved me in some way. And it's one of the big reasons I go to Burning Man. I love the art installations there. So I've just started to do that. And, and there's a lot of pieces that I've been buying now for my wife or for us, but it's I'm buying it with my wife in mind. It's because they just really move me and and she does. And there's something about that connection that's really powerful for me. But I also just want to surround ourselves with beautiful things that have, have memories and stories. And um, I think it's better than just stuff, right? There's, there's so much stuff that we buy and I'm not a stuff guy, but I think art is something that I'm starting to appreciate more and more. So yeah, Michael Dweck is this amazing uh, photographer who um, I bought my wife a piece at Christmas called Lila or Lila. Um, I can't remember the exact name, which is embarrassing, but it's this beautiful um, image of a woman. And we were at a, a restaurant um, in, uh, in Miami. And uh, we were at a restaurant with one of my clients who's the CEO of Sprint and some of his, um, his friends. And we were up in this lounge above the restaurant and we saw a bunch of Michael Dweck's pieces. And everyone fell in love with his work. And my wife especially and myself really loved these two pieces. And um, so one of them I, I grabbed for this year at Christmas. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thanks for sharing. I wish I... Uh could add more to this conversation around art. Um, I can't because I don't know that I have, uh, I don't know that there's an artist uh, that really grabbed my attention. Actually, I will say one thing that uh, I had the good fortune of traveling to Europe a few years ago and we went to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and um, not being an art aficionado by any stretch, but staring at original Van Gogh pieces and seeing the thickness and the, the, the motions of the way in which he did what he did, you could actually feel the suffering in the work. And it's a really profound experience for a guy like me that I don't, I don't know that I would know the difference between, uh, you know, some famous artist and some no-name artist, but being in that place and seeing it and just staring at it, it, it was... It was something I will remember for, for the rest of my life. And artists aren't so personal that people do something and because it moves them. And they don't really, most artists aren't doing it to please someone else. They're doing it to please them. They hope other people like it, sure. but they put everything into it. And yep. I do that with work. I, I pour everything into it. I pour everything into my relationships. And, and um, there's something about the beauty of these people that have put something into this piece that then moves someone else. And, and I think that's why I'm starting to grab some of them. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, you know, I, I, I want to go back just to your family for a moment uh, and this entrepreneurial spirit that uh, consumed and surrounded all of you. Uh, your sister, Christy, is one hell of an entrepreneur as well, as I understand it, and runs uh, an incredibly successful business, the Toronto Sport and Social Club. Um Share with us a little bit about your sister. Yeah, my sister and brother both run companies. My my brother bought my dad's company and runs it up in Sudbury, Ontario. And then my sister started a business about 20 years ago now called the Sport and Social Club. And she runs co-ed intramural sports for people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, and she's got, I think, 100,000 people a year play in her leagues. Uh, and, and she's got multiple marriages that have come out of this and just getting people active and doing stuff. So think about 
you know, when you were in college or high school and you did, you know, co-ed intramural sports, it was just for fun, but it was, it was fun. And, and then afterwards you'd go out and have a beer or grab some nachos with your friends. And that's really what she's built is an entire business around that. It's fun to watch. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and she gets culture like her, her company culture again is like a cult. Uh, they, they do some really cool stuff. There. Well, I love the, uh, I love the way you framed it and I'm going to use it. Uh, so I'm telling you now I'm stealing it. So I'm going to pull a, a rip off and duplicate in this idea of building something that's slightly more than a business, but slightly less than a religion. Exactly. And that's that is, that's gr- a it is a great spectrum with which to look at. And you can, you're right. You can feel when you work with an organization, whether it's a vendor, a supplier, you're about to be an employee, you can feel if it's just business or if it begins to lean more towards the, this yeah. is feeling uh, religious in nature. It's so different, right? It's so different. You. So I have one of my clients, I coach the leadership team at Hootsuite. And I think a lot of people know the brand Hootsuite. Well, you walk into their offices and you just stop. Like they have two main main head offices in Vancouver. One one is called Winter Cabin and one is called Summer Cabin. And it feels like you're in your summer cabin or your winter cabin. Like there's there's just, it, it's anyway, it's they get it and they attract people and they're game on and they're working hard and they care about health and nutrition. So if you go into their kitchen, there is no junk food anywhere, but there are more snacks and more things to drink and more things to eat than you could imagine. But it's all very healthy and organic. And, and I'll tell you, if you're an unhealthy person, you wouldn't want to work there because you'd be ostracized and you just wouldn't fit in. Um, that's, that's a cult. That's the culture that you're looking for. Yep. And it's by design. Yep. This doesn't happen by accident. Yep. You think about Google and Microsoft for a second. Google decided culture was critical. Microsoft never really had the discussion. Now, I'm not saying their products are worse or better. Not, not about that at all. But when you walk into the Microsoft campus, it just feels very beige, very void, very government in a way. You walk into Google, it's different. And they're both on the left coast of the United States. They're both in the computer engineering space. They both have billions of dollars in cash. They're both in the tech sector. But Google decided culture was critical and Microsoft never had the discussion. And that's the difference. Companies have to decide if they want culture to be one of their core strengths. And if they do, it is by design. It doesn't happen by accident. Don't you think a lot of CEOs and leaders misinterpret culture, though, for the ping pong tables and the foosball and yeah. all the perks and bullshit? They and that's not that's do. not that's not that's, culture. That's that's like giving that's a, stuff. Well, that's like giving all of your kids a whole bunch of the toys and you end up with a bunch of spoiled brats. You have to have the right core values for your family. You have to have the right mission for your family. You have to have the right vision of where you're going for your family. You've got to have the good kids and, and kind of whip the bad ones into shape, right? And then all of a sudden, you can kind of give them and show them where you're going and make them work together and build. And then you can give them some of the toys. Yeah, too many. The problem with the mass media is it only talks about the perks, right? But it's written by people who don't really build companies. It's right. written by journalists. So yep. they just write what they report. Yep. Um, or they write what's, yeah. So culture is not the free perks. It's the stuff that comes way before. Yep. Absolutely. Core values, core purpose, your BHAG, your vivid vision, all of your people systems. And then it's your communication systems and your environment. Yep. Then comes the perks. So uh, we could probably chat for hours. Um, out of respect for our audience's time and yours, uh, and hopefully giving them something that they'll listen to from start to finish. Uh, I'd love to know what, what what's on tap for you this summer. What are you going to do for fun? Um, 
golf more. Okay. Hike more. Yeah. Do a little bit of travel. Um, I've got a trip that I'm working on that I want my wife to say yes to that I'm going to try to uh, cajole her and twist her arm on. I'm not going to mention right now, but it could be a really cool one. Um, do some stuff with the kids. My dad's 75th birthday is this summer, so we're going to do something there as well. Nice. But yeah, a little bit more golfing. I have to, it's time to work on my golf game again. And I'm getting back into running. I ran my first marathon in October. Well, congrats. And I'm doing another one in October in Atlantic City with um, a friend of mine, Jack Daly, who's running his 50th state will be in October. And there's a whole group of us going to run that marathon with him. That's awesome. So, yeah. That's awesome. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Cameron Harold, um, <laughs> there's so much out there on the web Googling his name, Cameron Harold, H E R O L D. His website is CameronHerald.com. We didn't even touch on any of his three New York Times bestselling books. Uh, I've seen Cameron speak a number of times. If you've not had the opportunity to see him speak, I highly encourage it. Cameron, what a pleasure to have you. So glad you stopped by. And oh, by the way, I guess I should have mentioned this at the very beginning. So when I invited Cameron to uh, join me for the podcast, uh, not only hoping he'd say yes, not only did he, uh, he encouraged that we do it in person as opposed to over the phone. So this is the inaugural in-person podcast. So he happens to be sitting directly across from me, which has added a really fascinating dynamic to the conversation. And what a pleasure for me to be able to look you in the eye, read your body language, sense when I was uh, on a talk track that was interesting and those that uh, that were not. So what a gift. Thanks for uh, really insisting we do this in person. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. I'll mention the books. <laughs> I did three books, Double Double, Meetings Suck, and then the third is The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. I think the, the one, Meetings Suck, is actually the one that's changing companies right now because it was written for all employees at all companies to read. So we'd stop complaining about meetings when the reality is none of us have ever had any training on how to run them. Yeah. Well, and there's five key components. I mean, let's let's look to the five key components of what we can do better to run meetings. You want to share those? Because sure. I think it's, sure. it's such a bite-sized piece that like when you hear them, you're like, duh. Well, when you talk to HR groups, I do a lot of talking with the senior HR people in these great companies. One of the big common complaints of employees is the amount of time they waste in meetings. Yep. So let's fix it. Yep. We've never trained this. Most CEOs have never had any training in meetings. Of course, meetings suck. Yeah. I had a CEO one day. I was talking to him and, and he said, you know, our meetings are so bad. I'm like, yeah, but have you had any training? He said, no. I said, have your employees had any training? He said, no. I said, well, you would never send your kid off to Little League Baseball without teaching him how to catch a ball or throw a ball or hold the bat, you'd at least give them the basics. Right. Or of course baseball would suck. You know, the kid would go, he'd go to baseball and come back and go, dad, baseball sucks. Right. Well, of course it does. Right. You don't know what you're doing. So the basic skills you need to run meetings, every meeting has to have a clear purpose. Just the one sentence. Why are we here? Every meeting has to have a maximum of three outcomes. So what are the three things you're going to get done? Every meeting has to have an agenda. What are you covering? In what order are you covering it? And how many minutes are you spending on each agenda item? And allow your employees to say no agenda, no attenda. And if I don't know what we're covering in what order, why would I show up? Every meeting has to start on time. Now, my wife's dad had a saying, and I've been using it for years, if you're not five minutes early, you're late. And that's the reality is when you show up saying, sorry, I'm late, what you're really saying is, F you, I'm disrespectful, I'm selfish, my time is more valuable than yours. So teach all of your employees to, that sorry I'm late actually means something very different and show them what it really means and they'll start showing up on time. But the way you show up on time is finish every meeting and every phone call five minutes early and that way you end up having enough time to walk down the hall, talk to your assistant, get a cup of coffee, sit down and start your phone call or start your meeting exactly on time. And I get into a little bit more in depth, but I teach people how to run meetings 
30% of the book is how to attend and participate in meetings. And then the last third of the book is all the proper meetings you need to run a highly scalable company with a great company culture. Have a purpose, three outcomes of what, what, why are we here and what do we intend to accomplish? Have an agenda, start it on time, finish it five minutes early. It's so simple, right? I mean, it's just so simple. And if we just gave people, so. Now that's not the whole book, but those are the simple parts to start with. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as you said that, and it's a complete non sequitur, but I can't not ask the question because this is something I read about you um, not too terribly long ago. And it was that this idea and notion, I may be opening up a whole nother five, 10 minutes here, but I think, but I think it's worth it is, um, you've recently, or maybe it's not recently. I recently read that your idea around helping entrepreneurs, uh, many of which who not only want to solve a business problem, but want to become, um, financially wealthy in the process. And this notion of instead of doing something in life that can make you a billionaire, do something in life that can positively impact a billion people. And it was something I read that you said. And frankly, I think it's an amazing, simple shift because if you do end up doing something in life that ends up impacting hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of people, the likely outcome is you're going to be financially well off. Yeah, that's kind of the big, hairy, audacious goal concept of Jim Collins that I teach people. And it's that you need to have a bigger purpose than just your revenue and your profit. In fact, I actually, first off, I teach all my clients, all the companies that I coach, that your first and primary goal is your employee net promoter score. Your second primary goal is your customer net promoter score. Your third is profitability. Your fourth is revenue. Most companies have it backwards. They go revenue, profit, customer, employee. But you can't tell your employees the customers are number one because then your employees feel number two. Right. If you tell your employees that they're number one and you obsess about your employees' customer happiness and your employees' um, you know, happiness and their employees' satisfaction, they'll go through brick walls to take care of your customers. Yep. So that's the first starting point. The next part, though, is that big, hairy, audacious goal is that what are you trying to do on a very global basis? And the one I'm trying to do is replace vision statements with vivid visions worldwide. I want all companies to have this four or five page written document describing what their company looks and feels like three years in the future so then everyone can figure out how to change it. Because right now, that one sentence mission statement or vision statement does not align people and it confuses people. Yep. Well, it doesn't give enough of a descriptor of where do I fit into this and in what part can I have an impact in, in creating it? Right. It's like the title of a movie, but then you got to watch the two right. hours of the movie to get the rest. <laughs> right. 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 And I have to watch The Lobster, apparently, exactly. so we can have a very rich discussion. Um, Cameron, thank you. What a pleasure. Uh I, I, I wish you an amazing summer. I have a feeling we're going to see each other at uh, at a concert or two. Uh, Kim had let me into uh, a little secret. So I think we're going to be seeing each other uh, here in the not too distant future. So I wish you the best and I appreciate you joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate right. it. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Cameron. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.